Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini-series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But... Just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music. This Loughborough University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision, something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now, I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking. You've got nine to one grades on every question so students can monitor their progress. And you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits, though, are the Strive for Five and Climb to Nine pages in the Foundation and Higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiners' reports. Now, you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the Revision Guide and Workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths, and there's a link to that in the show notes page, or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. On today's episode of the podcast, I was lucky enough to speak to Kelly Trezies. And apologies, Kelly, if I've messed up your surname there. Kelly completed her undergraduate and graduate studies at Flinders University and the University of Melbourne. Following this, she worked as a postdoc in both the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences and the Centre for the Study of Higher Education at the University of Melbourne, and then at the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. Kelly moved to Loughborough as a research fellow in 2020. In this conversation, we spoke mainly about the topic of maths anxiety and the impact it can have. So we looked at how maths anxiety may cause students to not engage at all in the learning, or it may impair their performance by taking up capacity in working memory. And the thing that I found possibly the most fascinating of all is how maths anxiety may actually affect the strategies that students choose to use. And then crucially, we tackled the big question. What can we as teachers do about it? I found this an absolutely fascinating conversation about an area of mathematics that I've criminally neglected over my teaching career. I'll be back at the end with a few things I've been thinking about since speaking to Kelly, but for now, let's get cracking.
Okay, Kelly, we start the show as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Okay, I I have two numbers for this. Uh, I like the number pi because we haven't figured it out yet. It's not solved. And the fact that we're still discovering the full extent of a number, I think is really, really cool. And then the second one I'm going to say is the square root of negative one, <laughs> because it's just great that there's a number that doesn't exist that we can do maths with. And I, I just love the concept of it. I mean, it is a tricky thing to get your head around at first, but it's actually a simple thing to use in many ways. But the fact that it, it's there is just great to me. They're two two lovely answers. Uh, yeah, I, I I really like square root of negative one. I, it's one of my favourite teaching moments. If I, whenever I teach further maths to to year twelves or thirteens, I look forward to because the, they they've heard the rumours by that stage that, that there might be imaginary numbers, and then it's it's the, getting your head around it, but then realising it has real world applications. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's 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 a classic. Yeah, yeah very. Very good choice. It's a great rule breaker, you know, but but then ends up being so fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's it's lovely. Very good, very good. Okay, uh, question number two then. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Okay, so when I was in primary school, I loved the textbooks that had the, they had logic grid puzzles at the end of each chapter and I would always skip ahead and do that. But that, that's not real <laughs> maths, I guess, but I did like doing it. So I guess in line with that logic, I really enjoyed Euclidean geometry. That was fun. You got to learn just a couple of things and then you could use all the information in different ways to, to figure things out. There wasn't always one correct answer. There's multiple answers and it was just like enjoyable and satisfying to work through. Nice. Very good. And final question. Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education and research? Okay. The only other job I've seriously considered, and not even very seriously, um, is jazz singing. It's very oh, wow. different. I know, I know. It's I, I don't know what else I would do. I love research so much. Um, I guess if I couldn't do this, I would I would try jazz singing. And again, forgive my ignorance, and th 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 that won't be the, the last time I say this throughout this this conversation. I'm sure. But <laughs> how how's jazz singing differ from from just normal singing? Um. Well, I guess one thing is you're probably not going to get famous. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's it's something that it really allows you to make things up as you go a little bit more. Ah. Um, it has a different tone to it. I think more than any other genre of music, you're really encouraged to sort of paint the feel of the music with your sounds. It's not just hitting the notes, but you structure the sound of every note, every word, linking things in a way that's very expressive. And I really, really like that part. Wow, flipping heck, fantastic. We've never had that answer. 100, 100 <laughs> plus episodes in, we've never had that. I like it. Um, okay, Kelly, well, can you talk us through your career to date to give listeners a bit of a sense of where it all started for you and where you're up to now? Okay, um, so uh, when I was, uh, I don't know, seven or eight, I knew I wanted to do a PhD. I didn't fully know what a PhD was, but I definitely wanted to do one. Um, I even, I mean, I, I'm from Australia, but I still had a picture of Oxford University on my wall because my <laughs> mum travelled there in the, in the 70s. She didn't study, she just travelled there. And I just loved the idea of doing a PhD. But maths was my favourite subject at school and I was reading some books about girls doing maths. And, and I, to be honest, I, I thought briefly about doing a maths career and I thought, well, that doesn't, it doesn't sound interesting. 
And I think I was wrong about that. So, but I thought psychology sounded interesting. I thought that you deal with people in that. And so mm. I did my undergraduate um, degree in psychology with honours um, in Adelaide in South Australia. And I knew I wanted to do a PhD. I, I was also doing tutoring at the when I was doing my undergrad. I tutored high school students with maths. And there was... Um, and there was a girl who was who was really anxious with maths, and that kind of led me to in, to the area I was interested in for my PhD. And I moved to Melbourne to start my PhD. It was at the University of Melbourne. Um, you know, un- unfortunately, with universities, there's a there's a prestige with some and, and not others. You know, and I knew I wanted to move somewhere to do my PhD, so I moved to Melbourne, the University of Melbourne, and did my PhD there. Um, and I knew I wanted to move overseas to do some other parts of my career. And and so about halfway through my PhD, I started traveling a lot. I went to um, Europe for about two months a year when it was winter in Australia. I wasn't going to deal with winter. Two months a year. <laughs> it was summer here in Europe at the time. So I'd come to conferences and visit labs and I would also go to America and Canada. Um and, you know, I, I would do two months at a time because it's so far to travel. So I'd go for a conference and then see as many people as possible. And I made some really great connections that way. And that's and um, and then I started up. It was hard to find the right postdoc for me. I was really sure about what I wanted to do in terms of the research. And I I'd actually come um, on one of my trips. I'd come to, to Loughborough and um, met. My, some of the team that I work with now and uh, I I was I tr- tried to apply for grants then to come here after that but I didn't get them and um, I found a job that looked fantastic it was exactly what I wanted to research um, at the University of Chicago and I applied for it and and got that so I moved to Chicago and I, I worked as a postdoc there for a couple of years um, which was really fascinating and then um, and then I heard about the job op- like that this new center had started at Loughborough to really expand the the mathematical cognition work that was going on here and I applied for a research only job because I really love research um, and I I got I, I was really lucky to get that and and so I moved uh, to Loughborough at the start of this year um to to start my research only job um doing just the independent research that I have but uh yeah I've, I've moved around a lot and every stage of moving is associated with a stage of my career wow flipping egg and uh, well I guess the big question is how do the winters in Loughborough compare to the winters in Adelaide because I, I think I'd be choosing the latter there <laughs> yeah definitely um uh I mean Adelaide is the driest is is the capital of South Australia. South Australia is the driest state in the driest country, so it is dry. And sometimes you're uh, this will be surprising to people in the UK, but sometimes we want rain. Like we're we're so excited when it does rain. I grew up in drought, and a cold day is like a cold day. The morning will get down to maybe five degrees, but most wow. but like a typical day in winter is maybe like a cold day in winter is maybe 10 degrees. There's not Jeez. many days like that. Um, so it was I, the day I moved from Australia to Chicago, it was 40 some, 42 degrees in Australia and minus 13 in Chicago. 
Wow. Jeez. It was a real switch. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I bet. Well, um, just before we dive into talking about your research in particular, Kelly, um, the question I, I always ask any guest is just to talk about a favorite failure. Now, this could be a moment from, from any part of your professional life or from you from your research career, but I'm looking for something that didn't go according to plan and crucially what you learned from the experience. Okay. Um, so I, I had, well, one thing that went quite, well, I thought it was going quite wrong. (laughs) Um, I, so you will get to what I research in in a bit, but I do look at, at, uh, emotions and cognition and how they change. And so one thing that I was looking at was how, how they changed in the classroom. So I was administering a working memory measure, which I, I know you've spoken about with a few people and. I was working, so it was a, it's a cognitive measure, and we normally assume that we'll get a normal distribution with that. So that's like a bell-shaped curve, similar with height, where most people, the average is sort of in the middle, that's like the peak, and there's not many people at the ends. And But yeah. overall, it's a really similar kind of distribution. And that's what you're supposed to get. But I was assessing this thing multiple times over the day. And normally, you know, you might get a few people that don't fit into that, and you kind of assume they're not doing the task properly, and you might mm. discard that data. And what I found over time was like yeah, I got the normal distribution at first and then the second time point, it didn't. there was a couple of people or a few people that were drifting away from that and it kept getting worse. This like this like group that was just doing terribly got bigger <laughs> and bigger and I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to discard half of this data. It's, I was so worried. I was like, how did this go wrong? And and I didn't discard it. <laughs> I, I, I spent a long time worried that my, ter- my study was dreadful and I didn't know what to do with it anymore but I actually started modeling with it and what I found was this was really it, it there was enormous change and it was predictable we could me- we could predict from time one who was going to end up not doing very well and it was based on where they started with their initial cognitive functioning their working memory and their initial um anxiety we could see how we could predict who was likely to end up in that bottom group so it was actually really meaningful to me it was a really big contribution to knowledge and understanding of cognition emotion interactions over a short space of time but I really thought it was a a giant mistake at first that needed to be discarded (laughs) I like it so what's what's the takeaway there just just be a bit more well a bit more careful before chucking stuff away just in case uh, there's a bit of gold in there I think that not only that I think that's true for sure but also don't be worried when your stuff doesn't fit what you expect mm. you know don't think you're wrong think that maybe others haven't done it maybe maybe it's undiscovered or maybe our normal view of things is it doesn't fit everything doesn't doesn't it hasn't been looked at in every direction so all the all the the reason I thought it was wrong is because all of our measurements and models are really from a single time point and we hadn't looked at how these things change over a brief point of time sometimes we do longitudinal you know over a year Mm. or two so that meant we actually had this missing understanding and it turns out people can get you know, I mean, I think if we think about it in a logical way as well, we don't all stay at the same, our same good level of cognitive function. You know, we, we can't all concentrate really well all the time. We're going to decline sometimes. And and really sometimes when you find something that doesn't fit the mould is because the mould needs to change a little bit. Nice. I like it. I like it. Okay. Right, Kelly, let's turn to your chosen area of research. So what are we going to be talking about today? So... I, I 
my research looks at how cognitive functioning and abilities interact with emotions like anxiety and how that's affected by the context. Most of the time I, I've looked at this in the context of mathematics anxiety because we do maths in the classroom. Maths is cognitively demanding. It's anxiety provoking for a lot, for a lot of individuals, but also the the maths itself is not always the same. It varies. And so so I've tried to look at different ways in which um, cognition and emotion interact with each other, change over time, and affect your, your ability to do things like to do maths and the ways that it affects um, our ability to do maths. This is fascinating. And whenever um, Colin Foster sent through the kind of bios of each of the guests, whenever I saw yours and, and that you were going to be talking about mass anxiety, my eyes lit up because just to give you a bit of background of where I'm at with this. So I, I taught for 12 years without even thinking about any aspect of educational research whatsoever. And I was very happy. I was just teaching away. Everything seemed to be going fine. And it was whenever I started interviewing guests on my podcast that I first started to get interested into research. And my whole my whole world fell apart when I realized there was whole areas of things that I'd never even considered. And I, I had to stop doing a lot of the things that I've been doing for many, many, many years. But maths anxiety is really interesting because... I, I I was, honestly, Kelly, I was so ignorant of this. It, it scares me. And what I'm about to say now is absolutely terrible, but I'll, I'll just tell you anyway. So I I wasn't really aware of it as a thing. And I always I always think of the stories as, of, of, of two students. So one one was a, um, a lad called Tom who was in bottom set year, my bottom set year eight, so my 12 and 13-year-olds. And he really hated maths. He would be like purposefully late to, to every lesson. He was, he was like almost on the verge of tears sometimes um, in lessons. And it was, it was terrible. And I was trying to figure out what was going, going on. But my assumption was he didn't like maths just because he wasn't particularly good at maths. So my job was just to help him kind of get better and give him more practice. But, but that, that never seemed to work. But then another student always springs to mind, uh, Jenny. She was in my top set year 11. And what was fascinating there was she was she was a really good mathematician, but she would always say that maths was her least favorite subject. She never felt kind of comfortable doing it. Um, she couldn't wait to drop it um, whenever she finished the GCSE. She was never going to look at another number again and so on. And I just assumed she was just kind of overreacting, being a bit dramatic. And I wanted to say to her, look, there are so many students who'd love to be as good at maths as you are, Jenny. But now, honestly, Kelly, now my limited reading of maths anxiety just suggest to me that I was just being so ignorant and, and so naive and so kind of such a lack of understanding of what really could have been going on with these students. And do, do, does that make any sense? And does that chime with some experiences perhaps you've had speaking to other teachers, maybe? You know, it, it actually fits with my own personal experiences as well, to be honest, because I liked maths and I was like, what do you, what do you need to be anxious <laughs> yeah. about? And, and it wasn't until I was tutoring a student and I kind of alluded to this before I, I was tutoring a high school student and she was so anxious about everything. I was sitting next to her and we're working through things. And not only was she just a little bit anxious, like she couldn't attempt to even try the problems. Yes. And I asked her, I, I was just like, okay, we've got to find a way around this. And I said, okay, what I want you to do is try and get it wrong. And like I didn't even say try and get it right. Try and do something. Try and get it wrong. And yes. she still couldn't attempt it. She was still so afraid. She couldn't wow. even try and get something wrong. And that was when I was like, okay, this is, this is not, this is not how I see the world. You know, this mm. is changing my point of view here. And that really drew my interest into maths anxiety because it was, it was, um, 
it was very really strange to see when you're someone that doesn't get why anyone would be anxious about maths and then you see someone having this this like this reaction where they can't do anything you know they're really they're they're just they can't they can't even pick up a pen you know uh, that that changes your perspective pretty quickly Absolutely. And again, we're going to dig into your research in a lot more detail, obviously. But just before I forget to to, to ask you this, one of the, the things just anecdotally in my limited experience that's really surprised me about um, kind of students who are anxious in terms of math is that it doesn't seem to be perfectly correlated with their mathematical achievement. I think I tend to see students who are perhaps um, a, a slightly lower achievers in mathematics tend to be I see the prevalence of math anxiety a little bit more, but it's certainly, as I described with Jenny, it's certainly not the case that if you're good at maths, all of a sudden you just love it and you're perfectly relaxed um, in it all the time. Well, would that be fair to say? Yeah, there's there's individual differences. You mm. know, it's not a it's lo- not a linear relationship at mm. all. There's individual differences. And I think that if we sit back and think about it, we, you know, you've got a classroom of kids and we know they've all got different emotional reactivities. And those reactivities can be both intensity and propensity. You know, some kids are going to get anxious all the time Mm. or going to have an emotional reaction all the time and and it doesn't take much to set them off. And others will uh, just seem calm all the time. You know, there are these massive individual differences. And um, I think that those things are really important. It is a challenge in terms of how once you realize there that not everyone's the same and it's not linear, it's a challenge to then f- figure out how how to think about it and understand it and represent it. But but you're absolutely right; it's not a one size fits all approach, and it's not just like you know, there's lots of different theories about what causes maths anxiety and, and things like that. And and I think it's not necessarily poor performance that's going to be um, predicting it. But but I do think when you know when you talk to adults which is different to to the kids. But when you talk to adults, and I say I do maths anxiety research, there are some people that I say that and they like, I was talking to, I was visiting my mum in Adelaide and she ran into someone at the shop and and the person asked, what do I research? And I said maths anxiety. She nearly started crying in the shop. She was in her 60s, I think, because she had a maths teacher that made her anxious. Like she she Mm. could still recount this experience and it like, decades later it's still affecting her her opinion of maths and I just tell her what I research and she nearly cries and and I don't detect many like those those are minority experiences there's not many of them so it's hard to detect them in the research that I do but occasionally you do you know you can but it is very interesting to hear about it from adult populations where time has you know they've had time to you know either build it up in their head or not you know and and it's a very visceral reaction it, it, it's fascinating this I, I was speaking to one of your colleagues earlier on I think for, for episode two and we were talking about um, parental engagement and we were talking about how parents seem to view mathematics different to, to other subjects in the sense that they think perhaps the way maths is taught is mm-hmm. is now different to how when they were taught it or they were never maths people themselves so they find it a lot more difficult to be as engaged supporting their student in maths as they are in other subjects and um, I know we're going to be talking about maths anxiety here but do you, do you think maths is, is it unique in its kind of anxiety inducing ability um, compared to other subjects or is it just is it is it on a par with something like English or history or history or geography? Well, anecdotally, I've never heard anyone say I am not an English person. No. No one's no. ever said that to me. 
So, but I do think there's also more of a cultural acceptance to to not be a maths person. Mm. Um, the appeal of maths, I think, contributes to this, or lack of appeal, because and a, a lack of understanding of what it means to be bad at maths. You know, I don't really do dyscalculia research, but I, I I'm familiar with it, and I. If you talk about that with some people, they'll just instantly say they're dyscalculic. It's like, well, no, they just, they're clearly not dyscalculic. They've got no real symptoms of it or indications apart from the fact that they don't like maths and didn't do very well at it. Mm. And, and it's, there is something, there's an, there's a cultural attitude about maths. That's one thing, but, but that I think contributes to an individual aspect of it. So I think perhaps you are more likely to have, um, anxiety regarding mathematics but at the same time it's still an anxiety and we know you know there's research about anxiety and um and there's been there's so much research and a history of research on just different types of anxiety from social to general to just feeling anxious or fear all of this stuff and and a lot of work has built on these general a lot of maths anxiety has has built from general understanding of anxiety but what it looks like in other subjects, I think the closest I've seen in terms of research looking at it beyond just maths ends up being statistics. But some people do look at it in a second language, you know, um, mm. which uh, I, I have, I'm not an, I haven't done a lot of comparison myself between these things, but I, I find it interesting even in research when researchers decide what they're going to investigate, how they decide, oh, it's, well, I know why they, I know how they settled on maths anxiety. Um, I've, I've looked into that, but how they go into statistics anxiety, how they go into le- like second language. Um, but they have, I, have, I haven't seen a single paper. I haven't looked for it. I haven't seen a single piece of research where they're talking about history anxiety, for yes. example. Never seen anything like it. I have seen some research where they've compared anxiety in response to maths to english to pictures um in in children and there's definitely there seems to be something unique about the maths or arithmetic there there's definitely something unique there um but i don't think we've had a widespread um look at things to be honest no no absolutely well well talk us through your your research then kelly What, what 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 have you looked at and what are some of the key findings so i have mostly I've done most of my research in maths classrooms and I have generally looked at how um how students um their cognitive functions and how they experience anxiety in in the classroom um in in Australia I did this with algebra so with high school students how how cognition how how anxiety and cognition changed during while doing an algebra class and how it affected your ability to do algebra. Um, and then I kind of got turned to the, all right, so we we know we always, all the research shows anxiety affects your performance. This, you know, we see that a lot. And I was like, we're missing something here. And that's that the one difference about maths and maths anxiety compared to other forms of anxiety is that maths anxiety is in a learning context. It's an educational learning context. And what we don't have a good sense of is how what happens with maths anxiety in a learning context. Does it does it change in response to learning and does it affect learning? So I guess I've always looked at at emotions and cognition in the classroom as changing in response to things and also affecting the, the maths or the task that 
that's at hand. This is challenging because it's you're not just looking at one thing affecting the other. You're kind mm. of looking at mul- multiple things going on. But to me, that's what happens with an individual. You know, an individual in their head, a child, an adult, you know, the teacher's the same. They've got multiple things, you know, going on in their head. And 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 that's the interesting thing. You've that's what we need to understand. How do they deal with demanding tasks, using their 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 the trying to trying to process a task, trying to use their their cognitive functions, as well as their emotions. How do these interact in an individual, and what does it mean for their ability to to problem solve and to learn? Um, and I think that that's actually really important um, to to sort of think of these things in an individual as uh, well. It's not one or the other. It's not. When it, you know, a, a classroom is in a very emotional space, mm. you know, you, you look at a classroom, it's not like everyone's, it's very rare that everyone's sitting there doing things and doesn't feel any emotion. Mm. There's so many different emotions going on in the classroom. And so far, most of my research has focused exclusively on anxiety. I am changing that a little bit, but, but we don't, I don't think that in research, we've always done a good job of, of thinking of classrooms as emotional places and the fact that that's going to that interacts with what we're trying what teachers are trying to do and the educational process of and and just letting kids sit and work and learn and things like that um and can, can i sorry really sorry to interrupt can you may, may i just ask you something this yeah. is um something that that I'm, i've been fascinated about for a long time and it came up with a, my conversation with your colleague um iro in the in the previous interview mm-hmm. and that is I'd never really considered before when, when we talk about kind of cognition or working memory, how you actually researchers go about measuring kind of how much load there is on, on working memory and so on. And, and myself and I ch- chatted about that, but I'm particularly interested in, in anxiety. How are you getting a sense of how anxious students are feeling at any particular moment in, in the classroom? Okay. So that's, that's, there's no one way to assess anxiety. And even when you think about what anxiety is, it's, there's lots of components of it. There's mm. worry. There's a cognitive component. You know, we all have worrisome thoughts. That's part of anxiety. But there's also a physio- physiological component as well where you can feel short of breath and, you know, you can experience it in a, in a more often said in an emotional way. Um, or maybe you'll feel, you feel more anxious. Um, and I've mostly focused on more of that cognitive component, the worry. I So... Mm. Um, but the way that I've done that is with, 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 in schools, I, I take a faces emotion scale that's from neutral to a very anxious face. And throughout the, you know, throughout my time, you know, the time that I'm in the classroom while they're doing whatever they're doing, I ask them to report how they're feeling on that, you know, so I get, I sort of explain how to use the, the scale, you know, it's got maybe six faces on it from neutral to anxious. And I asked them periodically to report how they're feeling at that time. And so, so we're getting a measure of how anxious they're feeling at that point in time while they're doing something. Um, This is a little bit, it's not a questionnaire. Often people give questionnaires to measure maths anxiety, but to me, I'm interested in how they're feeling while they're doing something while, while they're doing a task. Um, And that's, that's getting a measure of that. Um, rather than 
we all have tendencies to sort of like, oh, I'm normally anxious about this or whatever. But I, I, I'm interested in what how they're feeling while they're doing the maths itself. And can I ask as well? And um, my, my again, my very very limited reading into to anxiety, maths anxiety in particular, um, suggests to me that maths anxiety has a negative impact on performance in in given tasks and so on. And the the kind of causal chain there is that. Um, the more if the more anxious you are, the more kind of attention that anxiety takes up in in working memory, or the more of your working memory capacity it uses up. So you've you've less attention to dedicate to the task itself. But I sense that that's a very oversimplistic view of it. Well, am I? Is there, is there any truth in that whatsoever? Uh, and what am I missing? What what's the mechanism between how anxiety impairs performance? Okay, so you are you are right in in many ways but it's also only part of the story so Mm. there's two ways that we know of that anxiety well there's two ways that are commonly thought of that anxiety can affect your ability to do maths one is if you're highly anxious it's quite often that you're going to disengage from the thing that makes you anxious so that's that's when you're extremely anxious and and you just don't even try you know, there's not many people that fit into that, but it does happen. And I think I'm sure that, that all teachers can recognize that when I say that they'll think, oh yeah, I've seen those kids that are anxious and they just switch off and maybe they misbehave in some ways, but you can tell that there's some anxiety going on behind it. Yes. But the more common one. And I think the thing that we mostly talk about is when it interferes with your, your cognitive capacity, because worrying about things and feeling your emotions takes up space in your brain to process that 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 then reduces your capacity to to process the task at hand and so uh, that can affect how you do things in multiple ways if you've if it sort of if you've got a either um, a large initial cognitive capacity and a moderate amount of anxiety, for example. So it's taking up a little bit of space, but not too much. Mm. It might slow you down a little bit, so you can still do it. It's just going to take you extra time. But if, but then it's sort of if it if you're overloaded a little bit more, then your accu- accuracy is going to decrease. So even if you're spending longer, you just don't have the space to think through things. So that's generally how our, our models of of maths anxiety can affect your ability to do mathematics. Um, But I've also got some some more research coming out that adds to this story and makes it a little bit more complex. Mm. None of this is published yet. One of it's under review and some other stuff I'm writing. Is this a world exclusive, Kelly, I'm picturing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So one thing is that it also seems to – high anxiety seems to affect the strategies – that you can use. Wow. So there's some other work that has previously been published that shows that that it seems that anxiety or pressure, so sometimes people look at pressure instead of anxiety and, and say that they're very similar. So pressure can affect the strategies that people engage in. But I've done some research that is, you know, coming out eventually, hopefully, um, that shows that the anxiety experienced during learning or during a lesson actually um is associated with the strategies that people attempt a week later. So if you're highly anxious during a lesson, 
you're less likely to use those instruct, just attempt, not even get it right, attempt those instructive strategies after learning. So it's, it's the effect of, of anxiety is multifaceted. You know, there's no, it's not a one size fits all. It is multifaceted, but it's often negative. So just, just to, so I can get my head around that, Kelly, because mm-hmm. that sounds fascinating. So if I'm right, are you saying there, if you've learned something in a particular lesson where you were p- potentially feeling anxious, you're then less likely to draw upon that thing that you've learned at a later date because, well, for whatever reason, you associate it with that anxious feeling. Is, is, is that right? So it limits I, I, the kind of strategies at your disposal. I'm not entirely sure. That's what I haven't, I haven't finished that part of the, like, it, 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 like this is a first part. And so what I'm mm. not sure is whether that anxiety is a reaction to doing the maths and thinking, I don't understand what's going on here, you know, feeling overwhelmed during the, yes. the learning, and then you're not going to get it anyway. Or whether it's the experience of being anxious, like inhibits your ability to learn the material. Yes. I'm not sure which one of these things it is, but it's, um, or maybe it's both, but it's, there's clearly a relationship between your emotions or your anxiety during learning and your ability to, to learn that material Wow, God, I've, I've so many questions for you here, Kelly. This, yeah, this, this, this could go on a while. This could go on a while. I, let, let I, just... I do have this little bit of good inform, information. Oh, actually, go, go, this go is another please, thing please. that I haven't. Um, I'm actually writing this up still. So, but it seems that um, it's not just anxiety that's coming into effect here. I've also done some research that looks at both anxiety and enjoyment during the maths classroom, mm. and it seems that if you're really enjoying things even if you're anxious there's actually a positive effect of the um, anxiety so Mm. so knowing that emotions interact with each other and it kind to me it kind of says well we're doing a lot of work on maths anxiety but what about this this enjoyment is really powerful how do we how do we what's going on here and i'm really interested in that part now too well, let me get my head around this because actually I've written down here, can can anxiety ever be a positive thing? And again, I, whenever you mention pressure, that made me think, well, sometimes when the pressure's on, people produce their best stuff yeah. because they're really focused and so on. So is, is firstly, anxiety and pressure, I'm guessing, are, are different things. Well, would that be fair to say? They're different. But, um, you know, pressure is is often something that's put on someone, you know, mm. and you're right. Not everyone feels it in the same way, but I think sometimes when people feel pressure, it can create a reaction that's uh, maybe similar or the same as anxiety. I'm not, I don't know exactly. I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think anyone has it really knows what that is, but, but we also know that pressure can be motivational in some way and maybe, and not everyone is going to feel anxious from pressure. If that yes, makes sense. That, that makes, that makes perfect sense, but it's not true the anxiety on its own can be a positive. Is, is that fair to say? There's no benefit from anxiety. Um, I don't. I don't know. I have to say, I, I'm not sure. I I think that there might be some positives, but um, it, like the the original work of anxiety and its impact on pressure, not maths anxiety, but anxiety in general, talks about mm. this inverse U-shaped curve, where you know that people sort of put in more time or more effort to do well. But then, I mean, this is very complex because that research comes from arousal theories and arousal 
is this is the problem with research. It always gets a bit murky. Arousal <laughs> is, of course, different to anxiety because if you if you have extremely low arousal, you're asleep. So that, <laughs> <laughs> that end of the curve is not the same as being having extremely low anxiety or no anxiety. And so I don't really, I guess I can say I feel like it's murky and there's a lot of scope for some great research here to uncover those things so that I could have a clearer answer for you in the future. And could could you just go go back, Kelly, to something you just mentioned in before, and and I'm aware that this is perhaps research that's ongoing, but could you just talk to me a little bit more about that, how you can be enjoying something but be anxious at at, at the same time? They they almost sound mutually exclusive, but what's, what's the kind of dynamic going on there? You know, I think they sound mutually exclusive when you think about maths, but Mm. let's think about it in terms of performing. There are lots of people that might feel a bit anxious to be on stage but still enjoy doing it. Yes. You know, and and to me, I mean, I, I, I don't fully have my head around it in a maths context, but when, you know, and, I, and there is ongoing research, like you said, but we can definitely understand it in a different context. So maybe maybe we need to figure it out in a maths context too. But certainly performing to me is the one example that I can instantly think of where you can be anxious and enjoy things at the same time. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, I guess the big question, Kelly, um, is what what's the kind of takeaway from, from, from all this research into anxiety and we can see it's, it's potential debilitating um, impact on learning and, and maybe enjoyment as well. What, what can let's let's start with classroom teachers well what can us, us teachers do to help help all students but particularly those students who are suffering from from maths anxiety okay so one thing that my research shows is that anxiety changes in response to the mathematics you know they tend to be more anxious when it's harder maths mm. and so maybe what we can and we also know that Anxiety is reactive. It responds to things. And, and maybe what we can do, like what, this is, a, I don't have any proof of this. It's what I think, you know. But when I think of maths tests, we often start with easy problems and get harder. Yes. You know, that's so common. And if you're a student who's anxious and you get, you're halfway through and you're finding it challenging and, it's, and it drives your anxiety up, you're going to be anxious the rest of that test because you know yes. it's getting more difficult. So the fact that our anxiety can go down in response to easier problems makes me think that perhaps one solution here would just be to make sure we're not always getting progressively more difficult, but we vary things a little bit more. So that if a student is feeling anxious and overwhelmed, we give them a chance through some easy questions, you know, to get them back down. Um, And I think that that's, you know, that makes so much sense to me in my real life as well sometimes you get anxious or why like work seems overwhelming and so you just go back to some basic tasks to get on top of things and then you can so that's a strategy I think we often use in our real life but we haven't always applied it to what's happening in education and 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 what we're doing and I think in terms of teaching as well there's a I think there's probably a lot of good teachers who work very hard to relate newly learned content to the previously learned maths and I think making sure that that though that sort of making sure that people are okay with the easy stuff you know and feel okay about it they're doing well but they also know they're doing okay at it might help to reduce that anxiety if they can see it as a a, a problem they're more comfortable with 
Yeah, this is. I I absolutely love that idea of um of not having tests or whatever it is always increasing difficulty because you often say to the students, look, just because you can't do question seven doesn't mean that you won't be able to do question eight or nine or ten. But often that that is the case if yeah. the tests are getting more difficult. So the kids start to learn pretty quickly. As soon as I'm stuck, that's me done. That's me done. Yes. And tie that in with the anxiety feelings as well and that's that's really debilitating so that that's a lovely takeaway that kelly i I really like that one that's very good and can i ask you what so someone's work who that often gets cited whenever people are talking about anxiety or or particularly kind of emotions surrounding mathematics is is joe bowler's work and one thing that i'm I, i can never get to the bottom of and i'm very interested in your take is the role that kind of time pressure plays with regard to to maths anxiety and again i'll just tell you where i'm at with with this and then i'll shut up because obviously you'll know far more than me is that um i can imagine how if student if you like if you go into a room and say right you've got 30 seconds to do this really complex problem and there's a big like timer on the board and it's ticking down like everyone's going to be feeling anxious there and that's obviously terrible but at the same time I've always been of the view that it's quite important that students can do maths relatively quickly because I want them to have automated key bits of it so that if we go back to working memory, it doesn't take up as much processing power to do simple like multiplication facts and so on so that they can give more attention to more complex areas of, 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 of the more complex problem that is built upon these 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 sim- more simple skills. So I always say to my kids, look, you don't have to be the world's fastest mathematician, but actually, if you can do maths relatively quickly, it is actually a bonus because it means you're going to have more time and more attention to dedicate to the more complex things. So I'm always confused about the relationship between time, mm. pressure and anxiety. Well, where do you stand on this, Kelly? OK, so I'm going to I'm going to answer two parts of that question, if you like. Nice. So I think that role that you're talking about with the the. The, the speed in which you automatically know something, even if it, if you don't know it and you're given time pressure anyway, that's not going to help you put something in long-term memory. Mm, that's yes. a practice effect. And some kids might take, might have more difficulty getting that information into long-term memory. They might have more trouble learning it, mm. but that doesn't mean that, um, that speeded tests are going to help help it get there you know I think what that's putting two things together you want them to get to that stage and the way to get to that stage is by encouraging them to practice a lot so that they really understand that knowledge and they can easily retrieve it Mm. but sometimes but sometimes using multiple strategies is really great as well and um having a toolbox of strategies I really I you know I use that when I do statistics I have a toolbox of strategies to fit the right question and, and sometimes that's not always retrieval. As an adult, I know a lot of maths and sometimes I forget one problem. You know, you just forget, oh, what's that one? You just forget it. <laughs> and being able to, to like work it out when your memory fails is an important yes. thing to do. But when it comes to the time pressure and maths anxiety, I've done a little bit of research on this. Look at, and I used something called a... Um, a latent profile analysis. So this this groups, I guess, naturally occurring patterns in the data, or, you know, students in some ways. And so I did look at time pressure as well as problem difficulty. And this was, and, and I found that there were some students who were very reactive to time pressure, but not everyone. So mm. there was a group of students who under the high time pressure, they were far more anxious and their maths 
was not at all accurate. Um, so not everyone was affected. Uh, and and I, th- I think that what you said at first was like, you know, if you, if you put it in a way that's particularly anxious, either you just make sure they don't have enough time at all to get anything mm. right or you make it, you put in some social pressure with it as well, like a big clock reinforcing yes. do this, then then that's going to help push, I would expect, you know, that would ex- that would help push more people into that anxious kind of thing. Um, you know, and basically anyone can become anxious about anything. It's like how do we how do we make them anxious? Well, just put them in a put them in a situation where it's it's likely to induce anxiety. So you can put social pressure on you can put really unrealistic time pressure on you can do all these sorts of things and to a degree you're going to get some anxiety you might get it so much that they just totally disengage and and they're just like well this is ridiculous but you can of of course you can put in enough you can tweak it enough to cause a lot of time anxiety but I think in most situations that's not always what you get and the other thing is that um, when you have those timed tests, you don't just have time, you have tests and a yes. lot of, and a huge component of math anxiety. There's a lot of questionnaires that exist and they have like a, like a teaching or, or doing maths kind of bit. And then a test anxiety bit and every single one of them, the high scores are in the maths testing thing. So I think that makes it very difficult to sort of tease apart that maths time test when so many pictures, people feel anxious about the test, the maths test itself. Yeah, it's it's so complex, this, isn't it, Kelly? Because so again, just to go back to my my kind of uh, relationship with this, I, I was again as as I mentioned to you before, completely ignorant of the vast majority of education and research for twelve years of teaching, and then when I started reading about long term memory and retrieval and desirable difficulties and the testing effect and all this kind of stuff, I was thinking, ah, oh, amazing. So like testing is is the key to everything. But then what I needed to remember was that for many of my students, they have a really negative, like t- tests have real negative connotations for them. It's So it's it was shifting the emphasis away from tests being a tool of assessment to tests being a tool of learning. So making them very low stakes, the kids mark them themselves. I don't take in any scores. We make them a bit of a fun thing and so on. So you get all the benefits from retrieval without any of, well, hopefully minimizing the anxiety inducing effects. D- yeah. Does that make sense? Is that yeah. Does that seem a sensible strategy? If, if you have a look at at America they have these like high stakes testing every year and Mm. it's known to be a problem with how kids feel not only that you have a lot of teachers teaching to the test rather than teaching the concepts so I think there's two there's two problems that can happen with that high stakes testing and one yeah some kids do get very anxious about it um and and so I, I I agree that um you want if, you know, under, having a learner understand what they do and don't know is really important. And and in some ways, um, evaluation is a good way to do that. But it is that complex question of how do you do that well? How do you make sure that it's about them understanding what they do and don't know, getting them to, so that they can help themselves get to the right standard rather than just like putting pressure on them that they think they're going to fail or do badly or blah, 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 blah. You know, that's a, that's, that's a, I, I feel like all I said today is that everything is complex. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, but, I, but the other thing is that 
you know, like, like I think, as you said, you you didn't necessarily see it straight away, and um, that maths anxiety exists, and it's clear mm. that it, it it exists in different ways for different people, and that's probably what makes it very hard for teachers to see it and recognize it unless they know to look out for it, because it's not going to be shown in the same way across all students. You had it, you you know, remember seeing it in two students who were at mm. very different ends of the scale. Yes, and so. I think that it is challenging for teachers to figure this stuff out by themselves and then at the same time figure out, well, how do I even, I've got so much to do already. How do I incorporate this thing when it's not even, it's not on any standard I need to account for. Um, And so, but I do, when you talk about the idea of, of like very low stakes testing where you market yourself or you, you know, talk through things, that's feedback, isn't it? That's really yes. great feedback. Yeah. And having a, a test where you just get a bad grade, often often people don't look at the feedback on exactly. it. And sometimes, you know, depending on the teacher, there isn't feedback given because they're short of time. But have it, but allow you want feedback for learning. You know, that's the important thing. So you can get a marker of, oh, this is what I thought I knew and I, I don't actually know that part. That's how you learn. And I really like that that's an approach you took. Oh, God. Okay. Well, we've got one good thing. <laughs> things, things are looking up a bit. Um, I'm interested, again, so we've, we've obviously got loads of teachers listening to this. Um, what, as well as the kind of practical strategies that you've suggested, in particular, as I say, I like the idea of, of, of kind of shifting the difficulty around so it doesn't always go from, from easy through to, to hard. Is there anything teachers can be doing in, in the kind of messaging that they're giving to their, their students with, with regard to kind of how they talk about maths, whether, I mean, should teachers be talking about maths anxiety and explaining that it is a thing? Is that a useful thing to do? Well, what should teachers be, what's the kind of messaging that will be helpful here, uh, Kelly? Okay, so th- there is work on emotion regulation, like recognizing your emotions and then and then working with them to sort of, you know, whether you should downplay it or not. But with young kids, you know, in primary school, that's a challenging thing to do. Like regulating your emotions mm. is, is also cognitively taxing. And so I, I would think that asking kids to do that is, is tricky. Um uh, maybe maybe it's good to say you know some people can feel anxious about maths I, I don't know actually but I think that there are some things that we can do to help reduce the anxiety from going too high and then doing things to make sure that it doesn't stay high and also I think that you know just from the preliminary stuff I'm looking at in making classrooms enjoyable and maths enjoyable I I want to I really want to start looking at that a lot more and and because if, if the teachers are enjoying the maths and that shows to the students, um, I think that's going to help, you know, so, sometimes the way to, to not feel to, to not feel overwhelmed is to feel more invested, you know, and want mm. to do. And the way to do that is not through putting necessarily putting more pressure on. That might do it temporarily. But making kids want to do well because they like something, they'll work through it. You know, think of anything that you like to do, even if it's hard or overwhelming, if you enjoy it, you're going to really work through it. And I think I have no idea why it would be any different for maths. Absolutely. 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 And just just kind of one more question from me, then I'm going to just throw it back to you in case there's anything else you want to say about um, anxiety that we haven't covered. And one thing that's fairly trendy um, in schools these days, certainly over the last couple of years, is this idea of kind of mindfulness and perhaps even going so far as meditation and so on to, to calm students down, to allow them to focus and so on. And 
is is that something that that could be used to potentially reduce anxiety or is is that not something that that you would consider to be a, a valid approach um i haven't done a lot of research on that myself um uh mindfulness does take practice and mm. and a lot of these methods take time and i don't think i to be honest i don't think teachers want to start their maths class with five minutes sure. of meditation <laughs> in, a, in a practical sense like it, it does sound nice and maybe that maybe there's something about mindfulness that I don't fully understand but sometimes I don't know exactly how it's going to work in a classroom um, especially when there's so much you're trying to get through anyway mm. um, it's it's possible that it, it could be good but you know I think whenever it comes to advice for what a teacher should implement it should be what's the biggest bang for your buck mm. what's the least amount of effort that a teacher needs to put in because they've got so much to do already that's going to give you the biggest benefit and and i think that i don't know if i would i, I want to see something that that is going to not inv- require too much time or for the class or too much effort from the teacher that is going to help either reduce the negative effects of anxiety or reduce the anxiety in the first place. So and what, what oh, sorry, and what is that for you, Kelly? What 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 is that big bang for your book? Um okay, so I think that reducing the cognitive demands, you know, if if we know that maths anxiety reduces your cognitive capacity, then then what can you do to reduce reduce the demands of a task well some writing things encouraging students to write things down to do their working out and also um when when teachers are, are teaching there's a lot of stuff going on and making it very clear to students what they should be looking at because figuring out oh this is what's being said this is what we're talking about this is where i should look on the board that also takes up your cognitive mm. space and so making it giving students the opportunity to direct their attention, their cognitive processing as much as possible to exactly what you want, exactly the problem. Don't, you know, you can use um, so, so that they don't have to, you know, remembering what you've just said mm, while yes. in, in, talking about something else is hard to do. It's hard to do for an adult, you know, oh, you just said that. Now I'll integrate it with this thing that you're just telling me, put them together. And I'm also feeling anxious and don't have much space. That's, uh, I don't know. I can't do that most of the time. So I, we certainly can't expect children to do that. Um, This is interesting because I thought when you, when you first started saying about reducing the cognitive demands, I was thinking, okay, alarm bells were going off because I'm thinking, oh, we've, we've got to make the maths easier, but it's not that, is it Kelly? It's about kind of reducing, if we, to use the language of kind of cognitive load theory, reducing like the redundancy that's yeah. surrounding a task and and not falling victim to like split attention effect, not speaking whilst kids are trying to read text, all these things that, that don't take away, they, they don't reduce the, the, the difficulty of the maths itself. They just get rid of the noise. So yeah. students can concert. Is, is that the general yeah. idea? Yeah. If, if you're talking through two different strategies or two different problems, mm. Keep them on the board at the same time. Don't do one mm. and raise it. Put the other one up, and then ask students to compare the previous one by remembering it. To you know, like you can like you. There are lots of different tools that we can all use to reduce cognitive load at any time. So, so we don't necessarily you know sometimes it would be great to reduce the anxiety, and we're still looking into that. But we also know there's ways of indu- reducing the cognitive load of things. Yes. Not always by making it easier. I mean that does. 
work, but that's not very useful sometimes, is it? Um, that's not the purpose of education to just teach easy stuff all the time. You want to engage with difficult stuff so they get it conceptually. And conceptual knowledge is so fascinating and sometimes really challenging. So so make make that conceptual knowledge clear and get rid of all the, the barriers to getting to that to the maths itself. That's it. That's interesting. And and does it go over time, Kelly? Like I know it's kind of person specific, maths anxiety and situation specific. But but generally, if 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 teachers were to implement these strategies, get the the wording right, keep the tasks focused, and so on, um, tweak the difficulty as and when needed, is your is your um, intuition that over time, generally, people's maths anxiety may may diminish? I think that. Yeah, so I think there's two ways of approaching it. One is to reduce the effects. I think some of them could definitely reduce the negative effects. And we we do know that doing poorly on maths can often spark maths and anxiety. So we can do these things to help, in fact, reduce the negative effects, which ends up boosting performance, you know. But then I think some of these things we can do that, that, um, you know, like the strategy that you did of not making it high stakes testing, reduce, you know, so that there's fewer opportunities to to learn that maths can be anxiety provoking. Yes. Um, I think I think they're the two. That, that's what I would aim for. Got it. Got it. And just before we we move on to some general reflections, Kelly, is there anything else about your research into anxiety that you think it's beneficial for for, for listeners to to know about? Um, it's a reaction. Think of it as a reaction. I mean, if you have it enough, you'll learn that you're just anxious about maths. But with anything that's a reaction, you can change it. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Fascinating stuff, this Kelly. Um, I'd like to move on now just to some general uh, reflections. What's an example of something important that you've changed your mind about? I, I used to think that it was that a student could learn anything if they just looked at the textbook. And that was because that's what I did. I just learned from yes. the, I didn't pay it. I have to say in school, I didn't really always listen to the teacher. I just learned from the maths book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's not true for everyone. And in fact, there are some, and the environment counts a lot. My experience in Chicago really opened my eyes to this because there is so much diversity in schools and opportunity and punitive approaches and they all have massive effects on whether a student would even is even able to read the maths textbook you know um and it it sounds silly but being in Chicago helped me understand the importance of good schools and good Mm. practices in in education because before that, you know, I think this is one problem with researchers. Most of them are fairly smart and did well in school. Yes, yes. And you don't understand what it's like to struggle, really. The first time I really struggled with stuff is when I started my PhD. And that's a, that's mm-hmm. so different to school. Yes. But I, I learned some experiences in Chicago where there's smart people that didn't get on, that you had one teacher that, that said some really horrible things to them and then they just totally disengaged with school and left or some where you know there's there's violence in in unique ways I guess in Chicago you know at schools and and understanding this the effects that this can have on kids and learners and I know that sometimes dealing with these difficult kids is stressful for teachers but we but we can't always think of them in punitive ways um, because they've often got really 
difficult things going on outside of school and sometimes um, kindness and empathy goes a really long way. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating you say that point about researchers perhaps or you know being pretty smart and so on I, I think that's that's true generally of, of teachers as well I I mean this sounds cocky I'm like I'm saying I'm smart here but I remember when I when I first started teaching I'd always I'd always enjoyed maths I'd always been in top sets and I was then suddenly faced with these kids who didn't enjoy maths and um, struggled with maths and I was I just didn't have a clue what was going on and it I, I think it takes it takes quite a few years it certainly did for me anyway to to start to be able to be in a position where you can understand the difficulties that the students were having and as I say it took me 12 or 13 years to, to start to fully appreciate that some students can be anxious about mathematics not simply because they find it difficult but for for, for more complex reasons it's yeah it's, it's very very difficult and um, can I just as a little bonus question Kelly I wanted just to ask you something um just building on a conversation I had with one of your colleagues um, earlier on this morning we were talking about uh, dyscalculia and I'm really struggling to say that word Dys dyscalculia now again I'm just picturing a teacher here and they're faced with a student who's struggling and you, you're a busy teacher you've got 30 kids in the class and so on it's difficult isn't it to, to try and diagnose right are they struggling because they're just not putting it putting in any effort because they just they, they can't be bothered or are they not putting in the effort because they're they're anxious or are they struggling because they're anxious and they they can't put enough attention to the task or are they struggling because they suffer from dyscalculia so again it's it's a different issue there or are they just potentially and this is controversial but maybe that the maths isn't one of their strengths and so on so this is just this task is just pitched a little bit too difficult for them it's really hard, isn't it, for a teacher kind of in the heat of the moment to be able to to try and diagnose what's going on and then respond accordingly. Do, do, does that make sense? And, and yeah. what can teachers do? Sometimes it's really unclear to understand whether you're dealing with a deficit, a difficulty, or a delay, or a difference. Well, that's good. I like, I like the four Ds. I like this. That's good. I like that. And and that's hard to figure out, right? I don't, I don't necessarily have advice on the best way to mm. figure it out. I agree that it's hard. Um, but I think that, so there's, uh, there's um, some great work uh, from the University of Melbourne where they, they know that, that when there's someone who is experiencing a deficit, it doesn't matter how much you teach this, the, norm, the typical content we're not going to do well. And and the way that they phrased it is that with so many students who aren't doing something right, we characterize them by what they can't do. No matter which kid you are, whether whether you're just doing things in a different way, whether you're doing things delayed, whatever, it's it, for anyone it's horrible to be described in the way that's the thing that you can't do. Yes, yes. And under, I think trying to figure out and emphasize what kids can do and working from that, you know, their la the launching point isn't always fixing what they don't know. The launching po point can be working from what they already do know. Um, that is tricky when you've got 30 kids. I acknowledge that. Um, and I don't necessarily have a great solution for how to deal with it in a, a hot, as a, from a teacher perspective, when you've got all of this stuff going on. Um, but to me, I guess, it emphasizes how multiple strategies can be useful. Um, some, because uh, some kids, are, if if you're dyscalculic, the normal way of teaching is not always going to make sense. 
And so uh, being okay with kids learning something in a different way um, because maths, there's no one way to get to the right maths answer. There's multiple ways. And, you know, I, I think it's great when you can figure out, oh, you could solve it this way, this way, this way, this way, and what are the differences between them? Um, that doesn't always fit with I know that that's not always the way things are encouraged by for teachers, what they should be doing, but maybe that's something we need to think about um, and think, well, maybe what we could do, and maybe that's our job as researchers in some ways to figure out, well, how can we design, and, and this is what they've been doing in, in at the University of Melbourne, is looking at, well, this is a way to understand what they what kids can do and working from there. And it's been really successful and it, it, um, and quite, I think teachers are enjoying that as well. I, I don't know, um, I, 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 sh- I wish I knew, I could remember more about it. I found that moving countries affects my memory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you just, I just, there's information that just disappears. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I think that there's some really great stuff going on and and for teachers um maybe just sometimes acknowledging that it is difficult but also em- emphasizing it's not always the kids fault mm-hmm. um and and getting frustrated and making them do something a hundred times until they get it right is not always the best way of doing things yeah it's it's really interesting you say that kelly for, for me one of the big takeaways whether i i listen to your colleague talk about dyscalculia or, or yourself talk about anxiety is that what what is p- good practice for helping those students is generally good practice for all students right whenever you talk about reducing the, the 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 complexities of the task in terms of getting rid of the noise and so on or with dyscalculia um, potentially offering multiple ways of thinking about problems and so on like that that's not going to do anybody any harm so if, we, if we're aware of these problems even if we can't pinpoint exactly which students suffering from which just building in these into our armory as teachers I think can only be good for, for all students but particularly these students who are suffering whether it be anxiety or dyscalculia do, does that make sense would you would you agree with that yeah I, t- I, I absolutely agree with that yeah that's good news. Good news. Right. Okay. Well, let me, to wrap things up, uh, Kelly, let me hand over to you for your uh, big three. I wonder what three, they could be websites, blog posts, books, whatever you want. Uh, would you recommend that our listeners check out? And I'll put links to these on the podcast show notes page. Okay. So I really like the book, The Bedside Book of Algebra by Michael Willers. Um, oh, wow. I've not come across this. One. This sounds good. This sounds good already. It's very readable. It it talks about the development of different maths ideas in like a historical way. And it really covers maths from around the world. Quite often maths is really covered in our education systems from like a very European centric, mm. but it, but there's been developed great developments in maths from many places around the world. And it's interesting to know that it also has some theoretical stuff and some practical things. It's, it's really, I really like that. Um, Another thing that we haven't actually discussed but I'm very aware of is how people say maths is not relevant in real life. Mm, Once when am I going yes. to use this? Blah blah blah. And I hate it. Whenever I <laughs> whenever I see an example of something where maths is used in real life, I tell my friends about it and they just probably <laughs> think I, well, no, they know who I am by now. But um I mean they will get um, WhatsApp messages about, oh, look at this for the graphs. And <laughs> one example of that 
one thing about COVID is that we've all been dealing with graphs and looking at data in really interesting ways. Everyone's been engaging with graphs and every news site has some. But my absolute favourite is from the ABC in Australia. That's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It's similar to the BBC, but the attitude of Australians towards the ABC is a little bit like the NHS. They're really proud of it. They think it's great, but it's also always underfunded by the government. <laughs> right. Um, and they have this this site called Charting the COVID-19 Spread in Australia. Now, first of all, it's not depressing because Australia is doing quite well with COVID. So you're going to see the downside of the, the graphs where there's nothing going on. But they update the data constantly. It has multiple graphs. It looks at things in different ways. It's a really great representation of how different graphs can communicate different ideas and you can just scroll down look at different things click you know it's a bit interactive um i the it came out when covid first started happening and i look at it i've been looking at it for nine months now (laughs) Um, that's a good that's a good one i'm going after we finish speaking that's that's the first place i'm visiting (laughs) that sounds right up my street fantastic and then the third one i have is a book called invisible women exposing the data bias by Carolyn Criado Perez. And this is another example of how engaging with mathematics and reading about data can help us understand our world in very practical ways. Um, I, it's, it's a data-filled book. It's wonderful to read. Well, that part of it's wonderful. Sometimes the messages are fairly depressing because it has implications for our, our whole life. Understanding how, through data that women are not really accounted for in driver safety stuff. The effects of seatbelts is, um, and the, what safety is for seatbelts is always done for like tall men. And we don't really look at it in account for Asian bodies or women because we have different bodies and seatbelts work differently with us. So we're actually at higher risk um, when we have a car accident because of this type of thing. And a whole there's a whole book on this of how we can feel like um, understanding that getting data is important and not having data is can can have massive gaps in in, in and, and real world implications. Wow, that again, that sounds right up my street. That that is a, a fascinating big three. Those not not heard of any of those before, Kelly. So they're they're absolutely superb. Um, well, I could speak to you all day about maths anxiety, and it's a, a topic I definitely want to return to at some point because yeah, I've only been scratching the surface, and as you say, it's 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 a real thing that teachers need to know about. But it's also it's something that whilst obviously we can't eradicate, we can certainly take definite measures to, to help students out with it. So oh, Kelly, I, I I'm going to add one in, one thing in oh, there. I, th- I think if teachers, you know, maybe not in high school, but pri- yeah. but there's a lot of primary school teachers that seem to have maths anxiety. They don't, they're the ones that don't want to teach maths. Yes. And I, you know, have some conversations with the teachers that don't want to teach maths and maybe that will help you learn it or learn about it and also understanding well they don't like it and this maybe it maybe I'm teaching this and they're not because they're really worried about it so it's not just the students that are feeling it there are teachers that feel it as well there's definitely two sides of this that's really interesting and then of course you've got the, the third one in the mix they're the parents yeah, as well so yeah. it's <laughs> Oh, guys, so complex all this year. This. It, really, it really, really is. Well, honestly, Kelly, this has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for giving up your time to speak to us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
So there you have it. There was my conversation with Kelly Trezise all about her research, work and thought into the subject of maths anxiety. Now, as I said at the top of the show, and as I made clear throughout my conversation with Kelly, maths anxiety is one of those topics that, God, I went for at least 12 years of teaching without, without particularly thinking hard about at all. And as I described, I would, I would dismiss students who now I probably think were suffering from maths anxiety, either as being just not particularly good or interested in mathematics, or being a bit of a, being a bit overly dramatic in saying that they don't get it and so on and so forth, when actually I can see they're very competent mathematicians. And I feel terrible about this now, you know, absolutely terrible. But I'm, I'm trying my best to right those past wrongs by finding out as much as I can about what is obviously a very debilitating condition and, and seemingly a very common condition and do my best to spread the word about it as much as possible. So it's fascinating to speak to Kelly all about this. Now in these takeaways, I just wanted to re reflect on what I knew before and what, I, what I've learned since speaking to Kelly. So before, I, my understanding of maths anxiety was, was concerned with working memory. And I really liked that explanation, the fact that you can almost view maths anxiety as extraneous load. It's taking up capacity, it's taking up working memory, attention in students' working memory, but not in a, in a way that contributes whatsoever to learning. It's, if anything, it's reducing the capacity that they've got to dedicate to thinking about the big ideas, the mathematics, and so on and so forth. I like that explanation because I, I find it relatively simple. I can visualize it. It fits in with my understanding of, of working memory, of cognitive load, of extraneous load, and intrinsic load, and so on and so forth. And it was reassuring to see that that is certainly one aspect of maths anxiety. But of course, as we found out, that is by no means the full story. Now, the bit that is now really obvious to me, but what I'd completely miss was the fact that if students are, are anxious in mathematics, it may cause them not to engage whatsoever with the learning, not to pay any attention to the mathematics because they're fearful of it, perhaps fearful of failure or fearful of the feelings it, it induces inside them. Now, this, this goes back uh, to one of my favorite um, quotes or insights from Dan Willingham and also a conversation I had recently on the podcast with Peps McRae. So Willingham says that memory is the residue of thought. What students are thinking about is the thing that they're most likely to remember. Now, Peps added on to that when I spoke to him about motivation, that it's students' motivation which determines what they pay attention to. And it was almost the missing piece in the puzzle from Willingham's insights, and I really liked that. But if motivation is the thing that's kind of allowing students to choose what they pay attention to and what they pay attention to is the thing that they're most likely to remember. If you chuck math anxiety into the mix, then that is kind of, it, it's kind of overriding that motivation or it's providing a motivation to not engage with the material because of the way it makes students feel. So they may be present in body in lesson. They may, and again, this is my limited experience, but they're, they're unlikely to be messing around, misbehaving and so on. But if anything, they're, they're likely to be looking kind of a bit distant, a bit hazy, perhaps trying to um, avoid eye contact and so on and so forth. So they're not engaging with the material. So if they're not thinking hard about it, then if we go back to Willingham's, they're less likely to remember it. So that is now really obvious to me, but that, that almost hadn't occurred to me. I was, I was more kind of framing it in terms of working memory. I was, I was imagining these students were, were really trying hard to engage in the material, but maths anxiety was getting in the way. But of course, uh, 
Students, for very valid reasons because of the way it makes them feel, may not actually be wanting to engage in the material at all. At all. And the third feature that I found fascinating as well was this about strategies, that it may cause students to avoid picking certain strategies or pick less effective strategies to solve problems. Now, I hope I've got my head around um, the kind of mechanisms behind this, and that this is completely my fault if I've misinterpreted this. But the way I read into this was if, if students associate a particular strategy with a, the, the time that they learnt it, when they were feeling particularly anxious and so on, then they're less likely to select that strategy when solving a problem going forward. And they're more likely to fall back on perhaps a strategy they feel more comfortable with that inevitably may be less efficient. Now, I see this with students quite regularly. So maybe um, you get this sometimes when I have year sevens or, or year eights, and we have some, um, some multiplication problem to do. And let's say it's something like, I don't know, um, let's pick a pick a really daft one here. Let's like 99 multiplied by 18. Now, students will default into their, their kind of fixed way of doing things, which will inevitably be a written algorithm. So they will do 99 multiplied by 18, either using grid method or long multiplication, whatever they feel most comfortable with. And of course, that's arithmetically quite a complex thing to do. There's there's lots of kind of carrying going on. There's some fairly big numbers floating around there. Lots of potential for mistakes. Now, even those students may well have encountered a lesson where they've been taught kind of more flexible strategies. So let's let's change it to 100 multiplied by and then let's subtract and so on and so forth to, to, to reduce the, the strain, reduce the complexity of the, the challenge to be a bit more flexible with numbers. But if students actually found that quite a, an anxiety-inducing experience, that particular lesson, then maybe they're less likely to select that strategy. So whenever, whenever I see students using more, more inefficient strategies than I wish they'd use to solve problems, perhaps it's not that they're doing poor method selection. Perhaps it's that they're either consciously or unconsciously avoiding choosing a strategy because it makes them think about negative, uncomfortable feelings of, of when they first encountered it. As I say, that, that, that might be a complete misinterpretation of, of Kelly's point there, but that's certainly something that I've been thinking about since. And it's, once again, it's, it's really making me reflect on how I've interpreted past experiences in the classroom. So students opting out, students saying they don't like mathematics and students perhaps choosing less efficient methods than, than would be needed to solve a problem. In the past, I'd kind of dismissed those or, or, or interpreted them one way. And now I'm thinking possibly math anxiety might be at the root cause of this. And of course, the big takeaway from, from this conversation, for me anyway, was that the best thing we as teachers can do, alongside those positive feelings, those positive messages about mathematics and being as supportive as we can, if we're looking for something super practical to do, that is we need to reduce the extraneous load. If we go back to this notion that maths anxiety is filling up students' attention, it's, it's reducing what's left in their working memory to, to think hard about the mathematics, well, if we can't directly make students feel less anxious, what we can do is we can remove anything else 
that may be taking up students' attention and, and diverting it away from the maths. So this for me is where the real practical takeaways from cognitive load theory come into play and also cognitive theory of multimedia learning and things like dual coding theory because what we can do there is be super careful with what our slides look like, not overwhelm students with text. If we've got diagrams on there, carefully integrate the text and the diagrams together. Think carefully about our classroom environment. Is it, is it overwhelming for students? Be super careful not speaking whenever students are trying to read and process text initially. All these things that are, are really sensible to, to, to do anyway, if we make a real conscious effort to do them, if we do have students who are suffering from maths anxiety, it's only going to make their life easier because it's going to hopefully free up a bit of capacity to think about the mathematics. But also, it's not going to do any students any harm. It's only going to be a good thing reducing extraneous load. So all the takeaways from cognitive load theory that, that I bang on about, all the practical changes that I've tried to make to, to help my students focus their thinking more on the, the thing that's going to contribute to learning, they seem to be even more important for the students who, who are potentially suffering from maths anxiety. And the final, final, final thing I wanted to say is, and I, I referred to this, I think it was back in episode two of this series, whenever we talked about disc, no, episode one, sorry, dyscalculia. Um, it's really difficult for us as teachers to, to, to try and diagnose on the spot students who are suffering from dyscalculia, students suffering from maths anxiety, students just not engaging in the material for whatever reason, and so on. But the, that's the bad news. It's really hard. But the good news is a lot of the a lot of the, the practical things that we can do as as teachers to help our students will help across the board. And in particular, this reducing extraneous load to allow students to focus more on the thinking that's going to aid students with dyscalculia as much as it's going to aid students with math anxiety. Now, of course, students with dyscalculia are going to need some more specific support. But certainly reduce, aiming to reduce extraneous load in our teaching is going to be something that's going to be of benefit to all teachers. So we shouldn't, I don't think, beat ourselves up too much about it if we're worrying about making kind of really specific, detailed um, diagnoses on the spot. Whew, so anyway, flipping out, I'll tell you what. These, these conversations, they are leaving my head absolutely buzzing. It's throbbing after every single one, but I'm coming away with, with so many thoughts and so many ideas. I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. And again, this is just episode four. We've got six more of these to come, and it's all going to be kicking off as we get through this series, I promise you. There's some absolute crackers coming. So all that remains for me to do is thank uh, Kelly again for her time. Thank uh, Colin Foster for helping me put this series together. Thank you for uh, to um, Oxford for sponsoring this series, for podcastthemes.com, for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And a massive thank you to you, my lovely loyal listener, for keeping on tuning in. I'll be back with another of these very, very soon, episode five. Uh, but for now, you take care of yourselves and bye for now. <laughs>